title of today's message is Even There, and we're going to be in Psalm 139, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. A pastor took his minivan into the dealer for an oil change once, and as he was in the waiting room, he was alone for a long time until another gentleman came in and sat down, and the pastor was a little bored, and so he struck up a conversation with this man, and they talked about a variety of topics, and then, for some reason, the topic of President's Day came up. And the man that came in thought it was a shame that instead of celebrating Lincoln's day, birthday and Washington's birthday like we used to, now we just have this one generic holiday that celebrates all the presidents. He went on to say that he considered Abraham Lincoln to be a great man and one of the greatest men in all of American history and perhaps the greatest man in all of history. In fact, that he said that he tried to live his life according to the teachings and examples of Abraham Lincoln. And that piqued the um, pastor's curiosity. He had heard of people who follow the teachings of Confucius and had followed the teachings of Buddha, but he had never really let, met a person who followed the teachings of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, what do you call that? Is that like a Laconian? And the pastor didn't even know there was such a thing, so he asked a little bit further about this um, faith that this person had. And he asked, are there others like you that, that follow the teachings of Abraham Lincoln? And the man said, well, yes, there's a group of about 40 of us that meet here on the west side once a week on Friday evening. Because after all, Friday evening is the day, that, or the day of the week that Abraham Lincoln was shot. So we meet on Friday evenings. Our leader is a man with a master's degree in American history with a specialty of Abraham Lincoln. And he reads a selection from, Ab from Lincoln's writings and then he gives a talk explaining about what it means and how we can apply Abraham Lincoln's teaching to our lives. And of course our major holiday, February 12th, Lincoln's birthday. It's a big holiday for us. It's our, it's our big festival of the year. We have parties, we exchange gifts, we sing Civil War songs. Sometimes even one of us dresses up like Abraham Lincoln with his beard and his top hat and he, we give out presents to the kids. It's a lot of fun. So the pastor said, well, that's fascinating. I didn't know you guys existed. So you must study Lincoln's life and writings for yourself. And the man said, well, not really, not exactly. He said, I do own this big leather-bound edition of Lincoln's complete works, all of his speeches, all of his writings, all of his letters. It's beautiful. It sits right on the table by the front door. So when anybody comes into the house, they can see that I am a follower of Abraham Lincoln. I also own several biographies of Lincoln, and one of these days, I really do plan to read them. I just, you know, I haven't had the time yet. So the pastor probed a little deeper and said, well, how can you be a disciple of Lincoln if you don't really read what he wrote. And the man said, well, you know, it's kind of common sense stuff. You know, the golden rule, be nice to people, free the slaves, that kind of thing. And besides, you know, I go to this meeting once a week, I listen to a half hour speech, so why do I really need to read what he wrote? And the pastor said, he goes, eh, it's very interesting. He goes, so how does being a, a follower of Abraham Lincoln affect your life? And he said, well, you know, I go to this meeting every Friday. I celebrate his birthday. I, I own that big leather-bound edition of his speeches. And he goes, oh, and most of my friends are also Lincolnians. 
He goes, all my, I, that's all I hang out with is people who, who follow a, the teachings of Abraham Lincoln. He goes, so when you get together with your friends, you know, for social gatherings and stuff, do you talk about Lincoln's life or how to live out his teachings? And he goes, oh, no, 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 that stuff's just for Friday nights when we go to the meetings. No, we just talk about sports, politics, our families. Same thing everybody else talks about. I mean, we're not that serious about it. And obviously, as you've probably figured out by now, this is meant to be a satire. It's meant to probe into our own hearts about how we see and how we live our relationship with God. So I would ask you this morning, is your faith a part-time hobby? Or is it shown through a changed life, believing that God is your everything? And in this psalm we're going to read this morning, King David is meditating on God. And yes, he's meditating. Sometimes we think of meditating as something you do when you sit on the floor and a lotus stands and go, that's, that's not the meditation that the Bible talks about. Meditation is key of learning how to live your life hidden with God. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, next week of how to meditate with God. But as David is meditating on God here, he writes this psalm. And this psalm is what uh, most Jewish scholars and Jewish rabbis consider David's most excellent psalm. And we're going to unpack that today as we read and learn to meditate on our God and his relationship to us. So in Psalm 139, starting in verse 1, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to obtain. Where do I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise up on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are beautiful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eye saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And Father God, I ask, Lord, that as we study this psalm written thousands of years ago, that we would unpack its truth for us today. That we would see you in all of your glory, in all of your majesty, and in all of the personal attention that you have given each one of us in our lives. Lord God, use this psalm 
so that we can understand and know you better and worship you more fully with our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, most people believe that David wrote this psalm toward the end of his life, after he had gone through much of what he has gone through, all those failures, all those triumphs, all those trials, that this was one of his final psalms that he wrote. He's now sitting alone with God, and he's meditating on God and his nature. And he writes down what he has discovered through a long life of trusting in his Father. And what this psalms focus on is teaching us how a believer is hidden in God, of how a believer is, is molded and shaped by God, how a believer is led by God through their entire life. And the first thing that we see is that God knows you. Let me say that again. God knows you. Whether you or anyone else on this planet, whether it be past, present, future, everybody in all history acknowledges the presence of God, even the people that deny the presence of God, it's irrelevant because He is. And He knows you personally. What verse 1 through 6 teaches us is God's omniscience. And omniscience is the big theological term. And it comes from two different words. Omni meaning all-encompassing or complete, and science, which means knowledge. So you put those two together, omni-science or omniscience, it means that God knows everything. Meditate on that for a moment. Just think about everything that God knows. And if you start to really start comprehending every little thing that he possibly knows, it's just, it's overwhelming. The, everything he has to know and the vastness of that knowledge. And this, I, this idea of God's omniscience can sometimes be a lot easier to apply to creation than it is ourselves. I mean, isn't it easy for us to consider that God knows the due date of a rhino in Africa as much as he knows when we are getting ready to rise up and leave the house, maybe to do things to please him or do things that aren't going to please him. He knows that as well. Isn't it easy to say that God knows exactly how fast a butterfly's wings are moving around a playground near Beijing, China, than it is to admit ourselves that he knows exactly what you thought and said about that person who cut you off on the way to church this morning? Isn't it easy to consider that God knows the precise location of every atom of hydrogen in the most distant star in the universe. Isn't it a lot easier to think about that than it is to want to think about God knowing our innermost thoughts before we even think them? David starts off with a statement acknowledging that. You have searched me and you have known me, O God. And everyone here this morning can say the same thing, that God has searched you and he knows you. And if we are honest with each other, most, of, most often when someone says something like that or we read something like that in the Bible, your mind immediately goes somewhere where you don't want God to know about, doesn't it? You're like, oh, God knows about that. You know, some people are probably thinking right now, I wish Pastor John would hurry up and make this a short sermon. Because if he doesn't hurry up, we're going to miss the beating a Baptist the subway. 
They already have an advantage of being closer. But even there, God knows what happened. Why it happened. How it happened. When it happened. What led up to it happening. And what the aftermath is to anything that has happened. He knows every possibility of every event in the universe as well as what will actually happen. Isn't that mind-blowing? You know, early one Sabbath, a priest opened the temple to see a man already inside, laying on the altar, weeping and crying out to God. And this priest was surprised because they had guards outside this temple and they should have kept this guy from coming into this most holy place. And the priest slowly and quietly walked toward the altar, seeing the man's clothes were torn. He had ashes on his head and he was wailing um, before God. Sensing that this was a very holy moment, the priest began to back away when he heard the man start singing in a soft voice a song of praise to God. And immediately the priest recognized the voice. It was that of the king. The king who was currently embroiled in a major scandal involving the betrayal and murder of one of his closest friends. The king that was involved in this scandal that also involved adultery with that dead man's wife. And now she was even pregnant with that king's child. The person who wrote this psalm was that man at that altar. And after going through such a horrendously embarrassing scandal, this man came to know the truth that God knows and he knew. And what did God know prior to all of this? God knew it that this was going to happen to David before the previous king Saul messed up one too many times and God decided that there was going to be a new king. God knew before he told Samuel to pour the oil over Jesse's youngest son, anointing him as a future king, that David was going to mess up like this. God knew when David stepped out on the patio that night who he would see bathing in the sunlight. And God knew even then and even there. But God still selected David to be king. And in that verse that David quotes in verse one, or wrote in verse 1, he said, God, you have searched me and you know me. And what does that mean for you and me? God has searched you and known you. From eternity past, he knew everything. And he still chose to save you. Isn't that amazing? He saw that last time you failed, the time before that. Remember that real big one, the one that everybody remembers, and the one that everybody identifies with you, that major mess up that you did? And he saw that too. He saw it before you even had the thought of doing it. And he still saved you. He still called you, and he still wants to use you because he still loves you. He's loved you from eternity past, and failure does, or failing does not make you a failure. Tammy and I were watching a boxing movie last night, and there was a quote in there. It said, a boxer isn't known as a chump because he gets knocked down or knocked out. He's known as a chump for not getting back up and fighting again. And some of you need to hear this, that God is not finished with you yet. You, that failing you have does not make you a failure. 
as long as you take the hand that he offers and let him raise you back up. And that brings us to our second point, is that you can't run from God. In verses 7 through 12, it talks about the omnipresence of God. Again, omni meaning complete, and presence meaning that he is present everywhere. David asks, where can I flee from your presence? You know, God's omnipresence means that he is present everywhere at the same time. That's, by the way, how God knows the future, because he's already there. He's also in the past. Time is a created thing. He exists outside of it, through it, through the past, present, and future. He exists at the same time throughout all of this. And it reminded me, in the spring of 1984, I was one of about 40 other teenagers dressed in in robes, kind of shuffling into St. Mary's Lutheran Church in Kenosha to be confirmed. And we went through the ceremony. If you've ever seen a Lutheran confirmation ceremony, it's, it's actually pretty biblical. And we spoke the words, and they actually include the sinner's prayer, which we are to repent of our sin and receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and to become members of that church. And I remember as I was saying these words, I was feeling great. It felt like a large weight had been removed from our, my chest. And I remember the youth pastor gave the sermon. Pastor David Meisner, still remember him to this day, and I still remember the main points of this sermon because it spoke to me personally. He said, out of our class, one-third of you will be pew sitters or twice a year attenders of this church. You'll come when you feel like it or you feel guilty about something. You won't really co- contribute that much and you won't make much of your confirmation at all. He said the next third of you will be the faithful members, the ones that will get involved, the ones who faithfully support the church, both financially and through volunteering and and being involved with the ministry of this church. You're going to be the mortar that holds this church together and continues and sees it grow and be passed on to the next generation. And then he said the last third of you, I'm never going to see it again after today. And I immediately thought in my heart, yep, that's me. I've had enough of this religion stuff. Me and God are all right. My parents said I just have to go through and get confirmed, and that's all I have to do. I can go to church whenever I want after that, and I'm not going in there. God and I are all right, and I'm going to live my own life. Those were the thoughts that were going through my head at the time. And for the next nine years of my life, I ran from God. I lived the party scene. I left home at 16 lived amongst family and friends. After I turned, as soon as I turned 18, I dropped out of high school and I kind of worked various odd jobs, low-paying jobs, just enough to get some more money to party and continue that kind of a lifestyle. Then through different circumstances, the Army and National Guard came. I straightened out a little bit, but outside of occasionally attending a, a military church service here and there, usually because I was feeling bad about something I had done the night before. I stayed away from from church world. I figured I carried, you know, God and I are okay because I carried a Gideon New Testament in my uniform pocket. And I figured if I got killed with it on my purse, God might give me a break. It's kind of my good luck charm, get out of jail free card. Hey, God, I got this Gideon New Testament. Maybe he'll, he'll probably give me a break. And then I met Tammy. Tammy and I got together. We had our oldest child, Haley. And if many of you have heard before, 
Um, and remember a couple years ago when Kevin Robinson came here? He asked me a pointed question. He said, you told me, and I saw your upbringing, being your friend since I was five, how horrible your upbringing was. Your mom and dad always fighting. They separated when I was five, and they didn't get divorced till I was ten. That time between five and ten, they were constantly fighting, uh, figuratively, verbally, and sometimes physically, um, living with different people, being tossed around to the family, and the way that I had grown up. He said, your father has had multiple wives because of infidelity. And you know your own past of womanizing. And then he asked me the pointed question, what makes you think you'll be any different than your father? Or your father's father? Or your father's father's father? He goes, there hasn't been an Oscar, by your own word, what you've told me, there hasn't been an Oscar who's kept a marriage together in five or six generations of your family. What makes you think you'll be any different to Haley and Tammy than, than they were? And after I got home, Kevin's words were still haunting me that Haley would grow up like I did. And smoking my last cigarette in tears, I gave my life to Jesus. And even there and even then, God was there to welcome me back home. So I ask you this morning, where can we go to flee from his presence? Where can we go? You can't. Jesus himself said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. I can tell you this morning, you can't run from God. It didn't work for me, I tried. You can't out-wrestle God. It didn't work for Jacob. He walked with a limp the rest of his life. You can't out-swim God. It didn't work for Jonah. He ended up being vomited out on a shore somewhere. You can't hide from God. It didn't work for Adam and Eve. And with that in mind, listen to David's words once again. Where can I go to flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise up on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. And your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So God, might have, God has a word here for somebody this morning. Somebody listening is that you need to stop running. You aren't going to get away from me. I have you in my sights. It's like that story of the old military sniper. After the battle was over, they didn't have anything for the sniper to do, so they put him on guard duty. So they gave him 20 people that he was to guard. So he's standing there with his rifle, and he saw the looks of, the, of some of the prisoners looking out, you know, trying to figure out a way that they could run away. And he saw some of them start to edge you know, away from the group and everything and, and, and get ready to run. And he looked at them and he said, you see this rifle and this scope? You guys can't outrun this. And if you run away, the only thing you're going to do is die tired and out of breath. That's the same way it is for us with God. You can run away from him, 
but the only thing you're going to get is tired and out of breath. He has you in his sights. You know, it's kind of one of the prerogatives of being God is this. He always wins. You can't fight him. The odds are stacked mightily against you. And all this matters because God has a plan for you. And what we learn in verses 13 through 16 is God's omnipotence. And again, omni means complete. Potence means power. He is all-powerful. He has complete powerful. And we see that in how he has intricately molded us, intricately formed us, intricately placed us where we are for such a time as this. And it's not an accident. It's not an accident. It's all part of a plan. This is where the faith comes in. Your wins, your losses, your challenges, your trials, your failures, and your triumphs are all part of making you who you are in Him so that God's kingdom is made complete in us. I don't know how you think about things or, or how your brain works, but I'll tell you the way my brain works. And I think it's a family trait is we like to kind of figure out how things work and why they work. You know, my dad was a mechanic he, and then fixed water meters. My brother is a head of engineering of, of HVAC in a large hospital in Milwaukee. My paternal grandfather fixed TVs. Remember when TVs could actually be fixed? Tubes, checkers, and all that. If you know what I'm talking about, you're really old. Okay, just, I'm just saying. <laughs> if you know what the tube checkers are, but we had one of these in my house. And when I'm meditating on Scripture... I like to think about what God, and when I'm thinking about what God wants me to say on any given Sunday, I try to take it apart. And I think through the scripture I'm reading from all the angles. I think about the theological angle, what it actually means about God. I think about the practical angle of, of how it actually works. I think about the philosophical angle of how it works in the heavenlies and how it practically works in our life. I think about its historical and cultural context and then try to bring it in, um, and make it make sense to, for all of us here on Sunday. And when I read verses 13 through 16, I watch God mold each individual child and have a plan for that child and he has a plan for every child and every person who has ever lived and when I think about that it blows my mind I mean can you imagine going to eternity past and the planning meeting that happened in heaven with the rest of the Trinity God the Father you know heading up this meeting saying okay we're gonna create creation and we're going to have to have a plan here. We're going to have a plan for everything that happens. And not only did this planning meeting deal with the huge issues, like the wars and the countries that would happen on Earth, or how hot a star burned and what planet circled which stars, but it also dealt with the smaller issues of each human life. And you consider the Trinity talking amongst themselves and having planning just one event in my life that cause it to intersect with yours. In eternity past, past, during this planning meeting, God the Father says, so in 2014, we're going to need a pastor in Whitehall, Wisconsin. Now stop for one second and think through eternity past, everything that had to happen for that one event to happen here. 
God going back 7,000 years to make sure that my great, 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 to the 20th power ancestors met. The right two ancestors came together, had the right children, who then met the right people to have the right children from that same ancestry, who would eventually leave Germany and Bohemia on my father's side and then go to settle in Chicago and Norway on my mom's side and settle in Hayward. And then somehow those two families ending up 30 miles away from each other, one in Spooner, one in Hayward. And still my mom and my dad met, married, and had me. And then God takes me on the most improbable path ever to bring somebody into the ministry. I mean, if God uses donkeys to speak, I am the prime example of that. Okay? He taught me along the way, work long hours without it bothering me, living with less, patience upon patience upon patience, which isn't my personality. Molding and shaping and using the gifts he designed into my being to be brought into fruitfulness and eventually land me here to deliver the word of God to you today. Now think about all that, and doesn't that just blow your mind? Now take that and consider your own life for a moment. What it took to get you here to listen to this message here this morning in your own life. Through thousands of years, God molded and shaped you and brought you right here for such a time as this. And that's why it's important for you to realize that God knows you. He is omniscient, he is omnipresent, and he is omnipotent. Our God is an awesome God. God knows you. Tammy, if you could, Jennifer, could come back up. And if he is calling you today, if you're hearing this, this, or feeling this pull in your heart, you need to surrender. Because just as like that sniper said, if you don't, you're just going to die tired and out of breath. God has you in his sights, and he never misses. Because he has brought you through everything you have gone through in life the good times, the bad times, and everything in between for such a time as this. And yes, even if you are presently in a spot that is not pleasing to him, even there, right there where you are, you need to surrender to him this morning. Let's all rise.